Ubiquitous surveillance cameras on highways and in public spaces. Our towns turning into data-driven smart cities. Our government is collaborating with the private World Economic Forum. And traditional farms need to move for refugees, insect farms and lab-grown meat. The independent newspaper De Andere Krant is covering all of these topics. They may seem disparate, but all are informed by the same ideology, technocracy. Today I'm very honored to have Patrick Wood as our guest. He is the world's leading expert on technocracy, its history, how it became a political agenda and how it is unfolding in the present age. By seeing the full picture, we will be much better equipped to resist the technocratic assault. Patrick, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, it's just amazing. We can sit across the globe just like we're sitting in the same room with each other. I wish we could. I'd love to, I'd love to be able to reach out and touch you. You know, that's it. But it's almost there. It's amazing. So thank you. So you're welcome. Well, thank you for making the time for this interview. You bet. So to start with a very uh, obvious question, what is technocracy and where did it ori originate? Uh, it, yeah, it's important to to know about this concept of technocracy. It's not; it can't be compared to a traditional uh, political system that we know, like democracy or fascism or socialism. This is a brand new idea that came into the world back in the 1930s, in the early 1930s. It, it mostly in America, by the way. In fact really almost exclusively in America, um, there was discussions during the 1920s that led up to the formation of more formalized technocracy. But it was designed as a replacement economic system for capitalism and free enterprise and free market economics. And uh, that was in the heat of the Great Depression back then. It was a horrible time. Um, it was a global depression, too. Europe was just about as bad off as we were. And there was a lot of angst and anger against politicians because people blamed the politicians for the misery that they were having. Kind of like today, I think, isn't it? That people are pretty mad at politicians today, too. But um, these scientists and engineers in particular got together at Columbia University in New York City, which was the, at the time, it was this kind of the academic seat of progressivism in the world. This is the early days of progressivism. It wouldn't be quite appropriate to call Columbia University a communist educational institution. It really wasn't. But um, for about a year, they adopted the technocracy movement at Columbia University. And scientists and engineers from that organization and some outsiders came together to craft a brand new economic system from scratch that would have nothing resembling capitalism whatsoever. They, they, they wanted to make a resource-based economic system. In other words, they figured as engineers, uh, mostly, they figured that the inputs and the outputs of society were what really counted. So they said, well, well, we'll control the resources of society. That's the inputs. Mm -hmm. We'll control the production engine of society, which would be the manufacturing and the use of those resources. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, we will tell the people what they're allowed to consume 
uh, and what quantities they'll be allowed to consume the resources of the world. And um, there were other things wrapped around it that make it more understandable. One was that they proposed to do away with money altogether. They believe that fiat currency or currency of any type based on a price-based economic model were simply wrong. So they wanted to use energy as their, uh, as their currency, if you will, as their, their regulating influence on the economy. And they mm -hmm. proposed a universal basic income where every person in society would receive an energy script at the beginning of a period, like a month or a quarter, and they would decide um, that, well, they'd make a forecast on how much energy would be produced during that future quarter, and then they would divide by the population, and everybody would simply receive a, a script book that would be like um, traveler's checks or something, and you could go spend that, that script mm -hmm. for good services according to the energy that went in to produce those goods and services. Now, this is very theoretical, I understand, but mm -hmm. people can, uh, you can grasp the idea. For instance, the, the blue blouse that you're wearing right now, if you could trace that back to its origin, uh -huh. you would go through no, a number of maybe trucks, trains, airplanes, uh, farmers harvesting it in the field, you know, the cotton, mm -hmm. um, it goes off to another country, maybe Bangladesh, and it's uh, made into fabric, and then it goes somewhere and it's made into, you know, a blouse, and it gets to the store, and you buy it, and you're wearing it. Well, theoretically, there's an amount you you could probably calculate the amount of energy it took to make that blouse. And Especially so with energy, the current data capacity. I say again. Especially with the current uh, capacity to track things and data harvesting, because I want to make clear, like what you're talking about is a theory over a hundred years ago, or yes. a little bit less than a hundred years ago. Yes. Because when I listen, it, it really reminds me of the carbon credits. Yes, it, it absolutely is unmistakable. Carbon credits are very closely related to this concept, but <clears throat> more probably more importantly. Uh, is the concept of universal basic income. The early technocrats specified there would be no private property. They're, they saw no need for anybody to have private property. So all of the resources in society would be controlled kind of in a, in a global trust or a common trust where, where they would be able to dip into that trust and, and use the resources that were extracted from planet Earth. Um, and energy was going to be the regulator. That that would be the like the oil in your engine. It would keep everything flowing and moving. And, mm -hmm. and they they predicted this would create a system of balance between nature and humans consuming things. Well, when they said that it was going to be a resource-based economic system, they really didn't tell people at the time, at least not not pointedly that people are counted among the resources that need to be managed. And they, they viewed humanity, and this is very clear in their original literature, they viewed humanity essentially the same as the sheep in the field and the cattle in the pen or the feedlot, just animals to be managed and to be controlled. And, you know, um, well, okay, so humans, humans entered the picture at that point as resources. And 
you see what comes out, the, 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 the resources like a forest or a farm or a mine or, or an oil well, those resources can be managed very easily. They're tangible. They're, you know, get your hands on them and you can control them. If you don't want the oil to flow out of a well, well, you turn the faucet off. That's just that simple. It's really easy to control the physical assets of the world, the resources of the world, and the animals as well, like, like cattle in a feedlot, for instance. They're easy to control. But people are not so easy to control. And they, they saw, they caught wind of this early on. The pro, and they, they basically said, the, the problem is the people. How are we going to control the people as resources? We so what, what was the, sorry, what was the productive capacity of those people resources, according to the technocrats? Well, they were just, they were part of the equation. They not only, people not only make things, mm -hmm. in other words, convert natural resources into, into usable, consumable products, but the people are also, they're also on the other end of, they're the resources that make it happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. They're, they're labor resources, but then they're consumer resources on the other side. And, um, you know, this was just a very low view of humanity, in my opinion, um, that people just need to be manipulated for the sake of some engineer's, you know, algorithm or something. <clears throat> so uh, they, they, by 1937, they defined themselves uh, first and foremost as being the science of social engineering. Mm -hmm. that, that part of the definition preceded the economic part of it, where the economic producing goods and services, for instance, for all, all of the technate. But they saw, they saw the biggest problem, the biggest hurdle, as being the sci social engineering, which they developed on top of that, the idea of the science of social engineering. Mm -hmm science of social engineering. So how, in other words, how can you get people to behave the way you want them to behave mm -hmm. without rioting, without, you know, starting a war or whatever else. And so those two things, the science of social engineering and the takeover and complete domination of all resources, the complete elimination of private property, mm -hmm. um, and basically micromanagement of every facet of your life. Now, some call this scientific dictatorship, and I would agree. Mm -hmm. There was a book written by Aldous Huxley in 1932, same year that, that Columbia University had technocracy study group. Mm -hmm. The book was called Brave New World. Um, Aldous Huxley and his brother Julian were both from Great Britain. Uh, Huxley, Julian, or Aldous Huxley was living in the United States later in life anyway. And um, his book, Brave New World, was um, a paradigm or example of technocracy. There was no political system. Mm -hmm. uh, everything basically was controlled by 10 leaders, um, alphas they call them, of the, you know, of the community. Mm -hmm. And everybody else had to do what they said to do. And if you didn't like it, I don't know, there wasn't, they didn't bring punishment out so much. But if you got upset, if you got mad, if you got too emotional or something in some area that you didn't want, everybody carried this, this little packet of pills with them. They called it Soma. And they would 
pop a pill, oh, life is good. <laughs> you know, life, you know, really, it would calm them down. It was total social engineering. And um, Huxley, I believe, had a view of technocracy because of Columbia University, mm -hmm. uh, which was very prominent in the world at that time. And the president of Columbia was a, an egomaniac that, guy that spent more time in Europe than he did in America. And so he would hobnob with all the big leaders and stuff in, in Europe. In fact, he claimed that Benito Mussolini was one of his best friends ever. Just to give you an idea where his head was at, okay? So he was hobnobbing with people like Mussolini. And I'm sure that that um, that Huxley got wind of this movement and said, there's a book here, or maybe he liked, I don't know, whatever, but the book was produced. It's a very mm -hmm. good example today in practical terms of what technocracy might look like. Um, it's also important to, to, to realize that, um, and, and you just kind of hinted at it, well, you know, this, this technology exists today, but it didn't exist back then to do a lot of the things they said they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. The little known fact, I suppose, that um, when technocracy, when the movement was allowed as a project to come into Columbia University, Columbia only had one building at that time in New York City. It was called Hamilton Hall. And they had a full footprint basement. Uh, all the classrooms and stuff were up, you know, administrative offices were up top, first floor and then up through whatever floors. But they had a full footprint basement, and they were given half of that basement space to bring all the people together to, to craft this new economic system that they're working on. The other half of that basement mm -hmm. was occupied by the early iteration of IBM. That's International Business Machines. That's where they built the first Hollerith tabulator that later became famous. I hate to say it, it became famous in Europe in particular in the Nazi regime, helping the Nazis to run their statistical analyses and their, their train schedules and, you know, et cetera. Well, the scientists and, and data engineers at Columbia at, at that time and at with mm -hmm. IBM, these were the visionaries of the century that were producing, they were creating this machine that, that they just had in their mind. Th these were the most visionary technologists in the world at that time. And the technocracy study group was rubbing shoulders with these people. You see, little cross-pollinization here going on. Yes. So the ideas of the future of computing were clearly in their mind when they crafted the technocracy study course and, you know, kind of put it all together. It was clearly in their mind. And even though the technology back then, they, you know, they would have had to use pencil and paper, basically. That's all, mm -hmm. not all you had back then in 1930. Um, but they were looking forward to that progress of science and progress of technology that would increasingly allow them to do what they wanted to do. And so, sorry. here we are today. Yes. <laughs> but still, because it's the basement of a university, and even with the computer knowledge added to that, today there are a lot of nerds with 
utopian visions and they don't easily get translated into worldwide spending ideology so how did this this yeah super utopian vision got translated into a political agenda yes and this is another distinctive now that you bring that up there's another distinctive that's really important the technocrats of that day wanted to remove the layer of society that we call politics or governance in some cases, or government in most cases. They wanted to, you know, they looked at society, the structure of society. They saw the people down here and then you had the economic section and then you had the, you know, the political section as well. Since they were going to control all economic activity, according to their quote unquote scientific method, which wasn't science, it was pseudoscience by and large, but they felt that they were so right in what they would tell people to do that there was no need to have a body politic. So they wanted to remove the entire layer of politics from the world and simply control everything from the top down themselves. We see this antipathy. We saw it back then. We see this antipathy between technocrats and government today mm -hmm. that yes. is all over the planet. They're trying to de to deregulate, to deconstruct government, mm -hmm. to, to take out the layer of, of government altogether and simply tell people what they need to do. Uh, again, this is scientific dictatorship from the top down. There was a guy that wrote a book, a technocrat in 1932, um, who wrote a book, uh, I forget, it was called Technocracy, something or another, but he wrote this book, a little hard, hardbound book about maybe a half inch thick, calling for Roosevelt, that's FDR, who was just elected in 32, he mm -hmm. became president in 33, and they called on Roosevelt to declare himself dictator in order to simply implement technocracy right then. And the first thing they encouraged him to do, if, if he accepted the deal, was to send all the government home and appoint technocrats, namely them, <laughs> to appoint technocrats to all the positions of leadership in the country to regulate and drive and whatever the whole country. And so Roosevelt I, I was a sh smarter politician. I think he probably saw the handwriting on the wall and I could just almost see him thinking there at, after he got this invitation, I could almost see him thinking, you know, if I declare myself dictator, which would be cool, I, that part he could see, and let them take over, I would be the first one they took out and shot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do that. So he didn't, and he, he we got the New Deal instead, um, which was destructive enough to us, but you, understand, you get the point. Um, they have been pushing to get rid of government structures ever since. And so Europe is a perfect example of that, how this has happened slowly, incrementally over a period of years. Um, Europe still has national governments in place. Mm -hmm. And people still look at those government buildings thinking, oh, there's my government representative. They're taking care of us, making decisions for us. Mm -hmm. The European Union has taken over with their own parliament. All of the major functions of policy and you know other 
things that matter to a nation state, they have usurped that authority. And now they're being driven by people that are not even from their country in some cases, and the policy mm -hmm. may not be from their country at all. And the decisions that the local governments are left with are just minor decisions. You know, they're the really not consequential to anything. All the big decisions are made somewhere else by somebody. We saw, for instance, in, in Italy, when Italy was having its uh, complete financial meltdown, Greece won at the same time back in what, 2008, nine, um, that the, the, the government essentially in Italy was suspended for the sake of bringing in a technocrat, unelected and unaccountable, Mario, uh, was it, uh, Mar, uh, uh, Monty, um, I think it was first name right off, but um, Monty was a technocrat, also a member of the Trilateral Commission, by the way, and he came in to save Italy, Mario Monti, I think. He came in to save Italy as a technocrat. Mm -hmm. And he did, he stayed there for a couple of years, and then he went away. And you know now Italy's kind of back in the same boat again. They're about to collapse, and they're looking for another technocrat to save him. Well, this guy came in not with Italian policies, not with Italian benefits in mind, but rather the mind to deconstruct the government and simply to fix things economically. There's the economic influence of technocracy. <laughs> they, everything uh -huh. has to be controlled from an economic point of view. So anyway, that's kind of a long ways around to talk about this. But these people hated politics. They hated the political system. They still do. And they want to mm -hmm. get rid of it. So what you mentioned the Trilateral Commission. What was the role of the Trilateral Commission in, in implementing these types of policies more on a worldwide basis? Yeah. And when I read about your work on the Trilateral Commission, it really reminds me of the World Economic Forum. Did the World Economic Forum kind of take over or does the Trilateral Commission still has a big role? Yeah, sorry, that's a lot of questions in one, but. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's really good, that's a good question. Yeah, let's let's tackle the World Economic Forum first. What, what the Trilateral Commission was as an elitist group back in the early 1970s, they drew their early membership from Japan, Europe, and North America, mostly from the United States. Their idea was to create, quote unquote, that's their, this is their, their phrase, a new international economic order. We didn't understand what that was back then because we didn't know about technocracy, but Looking backwards now, we can see very clearly that they were envisioning technocracy as the model to go forward mm -hmm. with, not, uh, uh, not capitalism. We, we, we get that idea from the, one of the co-founders of the Trilateral Commission. David Rockefeller was one, the big oil and money man. But Zbigniew Brzezinski was the, the, the brains behind the whole thing, and he was... Um, uh, he was a professor, oddly enough, at Columbia University in the in the 60s, professor of political science. And he wrote a book in the late 60s, started writing up papers first, but then he finished, finally got a book out by, I think, 1970 that was called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. The technotronic era, as it turns out, I had to go back and reread his book again, envisioned or at least embodied the principles of technocracy from the early 1930s. It was just a, a rehash, a warm over. He didn't call it technocracy, but he called it technotronic era that was coming. Mm -hmm. 
And he viewed it as something in the future, and we're going through all the stages in the middle, you know, to, to get to there. Well, the Trilateral Commission adopted technocracy, the principles of technology or technocracy, as their um, their means to gain access to resources. Is Rockefeller is a money guy at the point? At that mm-hmm. point, it's uh, very sensitive, I think, to. <clears throat> to the to the end of money someday there would mathematical certainty and money is going to burn up someday and they got the idea that the only uh the only fallback position that would be secure is to own the resources directly well this is this is what technocracy said originally get the get the resources out of the hands of the people out of the hands of the nation states and put mm-hmm. them into and have it managed by scientific whatever you know engineers and scientists for the for the sake of maintaining humanity and so <clears throat> um, that was disingenuous I want to say is this was not an ideological thing so much with with Rockefeller maybe it was with Brzezinski but Rockefeller was just a greedy I won't say any use any bad words here it's just a greedy guy okay he wanted to get access to resources and take them away. We see this with Klaus Schwab today when he says you'll own, or the World Economic Forum says you'll own nothing and be happy mm-hmm. by 30. Well, you also see, uh, you know, the United Nations hatred of private property too. They want to do away with private property and everything should be managed by them and mm-hmm. ecological trusts or whatever. So, this movement got recast in the early 1970s, still technocracy, but mm-hmm. used for a very selfish purpose by the global elite crowd to accumulate resources to themselves at your expense and my so, expense and your country's expense. Mm-hmm. Just for clarification, because when you say elite and right now the world is so overused, uh, who were the members of the Trilateral Commission? Because it wasn't really a government initiative, but governments were having a place in it, right? Well, that's that's right. Um, the, the early uh, the early birth of the European Community was orchestrated. It was designed and orchestrated by European members of the Trilateral Commission. Their involvement in the early days, even and even now, their involvement today, members of the Trilateral Commission, their involvement today is still very prominent. Um, and the World Economic Forum has become, in kind of practical sense, an expansion, still an expression on one hand, but an expansion of the global elitists to include at least 1,000 of the major international corporations in the world. Um, you know, the, the, the WAF has a membership and, you know, the, the, seam, the companies like Siemens and banks like HBSC and Deutsche Bank and, bank, you know, the big politicians that belong to it, they're kind of representative of the original makeup of the Trilateral Commission back in the early 70s. The thing that's different between them is the Trilateral Commission was relatively secretive. They didn't want anybody really to know what they were doing. We exposed a lot of it back in the late 70s and 80s. But 
the World Economic Forum now has, <clears throat> I guess apparently their policies have been so successful in their eyes, they're now in the wide open view. Mm-hmm. Anybody can see what they're doing now. They have a, a website, the weforum.org, I think it is, and you can go and read everything now that they're up to. They're not holding back on anything. They're not trying to hide anything. They're just laying it out now like it is. And I I think early members of the Trilateral Commission would have liked to have said some of those things, but they Mm -hmm. knew it was time yet to say them, so they had to be quiet. Um, But now, very much so, the World Economic Forum is the same kind of organization that seeks to dominate the resources of the world. And this is, I know this is such a big picture for people to get their, you know, get in their head at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's just otherworldly to us to think, well, how could that be possible that somebody else would accumulate all of the resources in the world? Mm-hmm. You know, I, there was a, we talked off air about um, the environmental movement back in the 60s and early 70s and, and how it got uh, taken over by these crowds like the the Rockefeller trilateral group for instance mm-hmm. you could you could see if their goal was to accumulate resources what better way to, to start out than by taking over the environmental movement because that deals with land and land use and the use of resources on the world we'll take those people over and we'll just use it for our own benefit well in the 1990s when the uh, so-called Agenda 21 uh, policy was adopted by the United Nations. They had a big conference in Rio de Janeiro, as you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called uh, UNCED, that's the United Nations Conference on Economic Development, UNSAID. Um, they called this big conflab. Thousands and thousands of people attended. And um, they, they created what they called the Agenda for the 21st Century. It's Agenda 21. Yes. Um, Agenda 21 is credited to Gru Harlem Brundtland of Europe. And she was the one that headed the commission that produced a book called Our Common Future. Mm-hmm. Our Common Future became the blueprint for sustainable development in 1992. That's a very important connection to make here. Uh, and the United Nations, by the way, considers her to be the mother of sustainable development to this day. All writings are all pointed mm-hmm. towards her. Well, Brundtland was a prominent European member of the Trilateral Commission when she chaired the committee. And the question has to come up, was she, was she writing esoterically from a European point of view, or was she writing from a policy point of view of the Trilateral Commission. Mm-hmm. To me, the answer was obvious. She was writing Trilateral Commission policy. They wanted to continue this whole idea of resource-based economic system, which is sustainable development, mm-hmm. bring it to the world stage. And so the United Nations has brought it to the world stage now. They, you know, Whereas before, maybe it was just limited to the United States or something. Now they mm-hmm. had a global platform to get all of the resources of the world tied up. Well, there was a couple of people, some of a couple of the original environmentalists that we kind of talked about that went to Rio de Janeiro in mm-hmm. good faith, 
hoping that there would be some negotiations to make the world a better place. That doesn't mean I agree with everything they had to say, say, in the 1960s. But, you know, mm -hmm. here, nevertheless, they went in good faith. They came away from the whole experience of, of that unsaid conference with a different view, an alternative view, for sure. Mm -hmm. And they wrote a book because they were both academic types, right? So they wrote a book called The Earth Brokers. And it was really a revealing book to me. It wasn't the only piece of literature of the day that, that criticized Agenda 21. But the reason it's important to me is that both of these people were academics. They weren't just, you know, mm -hmm. environmentalists with a high school degree, whatever. <laughs> you know, there were some of those there, I'm sure. But these guys were fairly astute. They were very articulate. And they came away saying stuff like this in their book. They said... We argue that UNSAID has boosted precisely the type of industrial and de development that is destructive for the environment, the planet, and its inhabitants. We see how, as a result, result of UNSAID, the rich will get richer, the poor poorer, while more and more of the planet is destroyed in the process. This was very astute. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And we could look back from now, right, 2022, we can look back, ask those questions. Have the rich gotten richer? Yeah, check. <laughs> Have the poor gotten poor? Check. Um, has more and more of the planet been destroyed in the process of this super ultra development going on? Yes, unfortunately, it has. So their analysis back then is quite, it was quite astute. And we can confirm that today just looking at what's going on. Mm -hmm. Agenda 21 is sustainable development. Was a pile of hooey. It just, you know, they said well, one thing, they said one thing, and then they did another. Exactly. <laughs> because as I told you before, like I used to be a sustainability consultant and this has been a very um, insidious bait and switch because I know most people in this movement, they, they, their motivation is to improve the world, to, to do kind of work in which you, you help people and the environment. And um, it's being steered in a direction that is very destructive. But it's difficult to see when when you're in it. I have to see reading your books was very, very helpful to me to, yeah, to understand, um, to understand this bigger picture. Right. You know, it's, it's very, it's definitely altruistic for people to, to care, to want to have a cause, mm -hmm. to make the world a better place. That's the, you know, nobody can criticize that, but you can see uh, when, when people are cause oriented, uh, just individually, not because mm -hmm. somebody told them to make a call, but they just individually get this. I want to help. I want to do something, you know, with my life. And mm -hmm. um, when somebody has that frame of mind, they become easy prey for the so-called science of social engineering. And this is where you see that whole manipulation of people come thread coming through from the original technocracy group that mm -hmm. they call it the science of social engineering. It's a very slick, detailed um, program they have to mm -hmm. manipulate people. And so vulnerable people that 
like you know the the the, the idealists let's say mm-hmm. they're vulnerable to uh, mental manipulation and deception mm-hmm. they have a desire to see something they want to you know they want to see and the people on the other side understand that so they let them see what they want that what they want to see and they suck them in yes this is kind of like um, a magician a good magician mm-hmm. i'm not promoting magic here but uh, just a magician uh-huh. that's tricks a magician plays to that same thing to get you to look at what you want to look at mm-hmm. and while he's doing something with his right hand over here the real trick is taking place over here <laughs> yes <laughs> don't see it right Mm-hmm. So at the end of it, you go, wow, how did he do that? It's just like it's magic. Well, that's <laughs> the point of the trick. But this is the way deception works. And this is exactly what the United Nations has done with all of the various environmental flavors it has today. Mm-hmm. It brings people into it based on their perceived needs, their perceived goals, their perceived desires, their perceived cause, whatever it is they want to do, mm-hmm. they draw them in and then they abuse them to death after that and get them to do all kinds of things that they would never have otherwise done had they understood the trick that was being played on them. Yes. <laughs> so another reason to read your books. <laughs> I guess. And I, you know, I'm sure if somebody on day one, before you got into that, I, my guess is if somebody had sat down and explained to you and you could understand everything was going on, you probably would have gone off in another direction and may, may have been a good one too, where you could, where you could have uh, exercised your cause mentality to go do some things, but not with them because they were tricksters from the, from the get go. They, they were disingenuous. They had no concern really about the environment and about helping people. And you did. (laughs) So, you know, you might've seen that. Nope. This is a mismatch for me. I'm, you know, they can keep it. I'm going to go over here and do something else constructive with my time. Well, and here's also the, the more deceptive part because it's a very broad field. So even when you're working, there are a lot of things that you do that do have a positive impact but you're not aware of this bigger agenda that it's contributing towards. That's right. There, there's, there's just enough perceived good, or at least it's uh, the propaganda says it's good. Even if it's not good, it might be recast into propaganda say, well, we really had great success down there in Congo. We did this, we did that. <laughs> yeah. But how about all those 10 year old girls that got raped and had babies and you know, they're, they're shunned out of society now where they don't talk about that. You know, they talk about the good things. So, uh, but there's there is a perception that the United amongst the general public that the United Nations does do good things from time to time. Mm-hmm. But you look more deeply into it. That really is just kind of a necessary thing because if if everybody perceived that they only did evil, why they'd go and destroy them today? They they wouldn't have a chance to get any more dues from anybody. I expect uh, the citizens of the world will say not just no, but heck no, we're not giving money to that corrupt. Uh, you know, seed bed of uh, debauchery. No. <laughs> so, um, 
to bring it back to the technocracy, because you made a very important point, is that they want to do away with politics. And, uh, and in your books, you explain that there are several ways that they have like very deliberate um, yeah, methodologies in which they circumvent the government processes. And I would like to go through them because they're so relevant for the Netherlands at this point. Uh, for example, I will just give the examples and then we had a lawsuit um, uh, about climate change. And because of that lawsuit, the government uh, is forced to take uh, environmental measures uh, to combat climate change. So it reminded me of the reflexive law. There are um, various like smart regions, but there's one smart region that they're planning that's called the tri-state area. And it spans Belgium, Germany, and the Netherlands, um, which, which will turn like a whole big area into a big mega city. Uh, you, you understand what I'm going. And of course, you know, we have far, had farmer protests and you notice that the farmers start realizing mm, this is not just like an incidental thing. This is part of a much bigger picture, but they're yes. basically like forcing the farmers out of the land. And so what I wanted to talk about is or what I wanted to ask you about is um how yeah the process of devolution so circumventing the government and um the reflexive law but perhaps let's start with the devolution what is it how is this being used as an undermining right. strategy when <clears throat> devolution is stripping away uh political rights from a sovereign entity and assigning them to other people that have nothing to do with that sovereign entity. This uh, sometimes people people might call this, um, or they might relate it to uh, regionalization, mm -hmm. where a regional uh, political governance system is set up that saps sovereignty from the countries in the region, and it takes over major policies for the whole region, and then says, "Okay, country A, B, and C, you all need to do what we say." because we have decided this is going to be regional policy. We see mm -hmm. this all over the planet, by the way. It's not just Europe. We have we struggle with this big time in the United States right now with the, these regional bodies that have been set up. And mm -hmm. they supersede uh, the authority of cities and counties and sometimes all complete states. Mm -hmm. Elected, uh, unaccountable technocrats running the whole shebang and you know, you wonder how did they ever get in this position? Well, this was a plan. This this was a purposeful, intentional plan to do that. Mm -hmm. The European Union, in that sense, is one great grand expression of devolution because they have they have sapped the sovereignty of every nation and sometimes even within the EU, and sometimes nations that are even close to the EU but not in it. Mm -hmm. They have sapped policies, policy making authority. Um, the other thing that we see is um, uh, the, the, the technocrat initiative of deregulation. And that's an important concept. Um, it's, it's a little bit harder to get your hand on, your mind around, but um, the, the idea of deregulation, industries <clears throat> that, that want to draw closer to the technocrat model mm -hmm. 
cry out for deregulation. Now, now, government normally regulates an industry like it could be the airline or the airline industry. It could be the big tech industry. It could be you know, media. It doesn't really matter. But everybody is crying out about deregulation. In other words, getting the government's hands off of those economic elements of society. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is, uh, in, in some cases, you could, you could kind of look at it and say, well, maybe the government should butt out <laughs> you know, some <laughs> stuff. But when you see that this has been a global initiative for many decades now, deregulation started really in, the, in earnest in the early 1980s. Deregulation has stripped sovereignty away from the nation state, from the, from the government, those countries. And it has put the power, the levers of, uh, you know, of those policies into the hands of private organizations, private companies. Well, this is, mm -hmm. again, this kind of fits into the technocracy idea. So <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, what's left in what's left for the nation state to do, let's put it this way, after deregulation, uh, after degradation of their democratic institutions, so on, mm -hmm. it basically leaves a shell in place that looks a lot like the old thing you knew, but it's just a shell. It's just a, <clears throat> it's just a, like a mannequin in the store. It's not a real person. And the clothes mm -hmm. can be changed at will, uh, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, here's another policy that, that you'll recognize in Europe especially, and that would be the immigration policy mm -hmm. that has resulted in complete chaos in many countries. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with people coming up from the south, from mostly Muslim countries, Islamic countries, and um, <clears throat> these people generally have not wanted to assimilate into the culture. So they set up a separate alternate culture within the culture of that country originally. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, the country is destabilized from where it was, say, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, there's only two areas in the world that are struggling with that type of illegal immigration or forced immigration. The United States is one up from our Mexican border, South America, mm -hmm. and Europe is the other. You don't see any migration to India. You don't see any migration to, um, to China or to Russia. You only see immigration into the European Union and the United States. Now, in the, I won't talk about the United States, but in Europe, I'll talk about the perpetrator of the immigration movement in the first place. It started with the United Nations when they appointed an envoy, an, envoy, an, like a, an immigration policy envoy by the name of Peter Sutherland from Ireland. He was uh, formerly the executive um, manager of Goldman Sachs in Europe, big uh -huh. investment banker. He was not only a member of the Trilateral Commission, but he also was the head of the European section of the Trilateral Commission. In other words, he was like the chief guy over there in Europe for the Trilateral Commission. He set out years ago. He's just, he passed recently, uh, a couple years ago. But he set out on a crusade across Europe, visited every government in the European theater, and said, we want you to establish quotas 
for emigration from the South. And this is before it even started. They went around to set up quotas and they got countries to agree. Oh, well, that, that sounds, you know, like we could do that. Okay. What, what do they give us in return? Well, maybe they got a loan from the world bank or something you know, that mm -hmm. helped them along. Well, okay. We'll set, we'll set quotas like that. Nothing's happening now, but you know, who knows the future? We'll just do it. Well, when uh, this was very effective because when the invasion started from the South, all the countries were held to account to honor those quotas. Mm. So all of a sudden, the, the pump was primed for people to come in that they really did not want there. The people started coming in, and as countries finally started to get the idea, wait a minute, this, this, you know, this is going in the wrong direction. We're gonna we're gonna stop accepting any more of these people and just send them home. Well, Peter Sutherland made a second round to all the same people he talked to before in governments around Europe and said, with with the help of other people from the UN, said, You signed an agreement. You cannot go back on your quotas. Don't even think about it. And mm -hmm. then they threatened with taking benefits away from them if they were to renege on their quota commitment originally. See, mm -hmm. now, I bring this up. The whole immigration issue is just as thin as thin ice. It's disingenuous. It's manufactured. And it was manufactured at the hands of a major trilateral commission person in Europe, Peter Sutherland, with the help and all the backing of the United Nations. It didn't just spontaneously happen. They got the floodgate open up in Europe, and then they went down and they began to force people up and say, hey, there's a great future for you in Denmark or in Germany or wherever it might be. You, it's okay. You just need to go up there and you'll find every, oh man, that's a land of milk and honey, <laughs> you know? And so they so created- what was the purpose behind this? Because I know there's a whole industry supporting it, but what was the purpose? Why, why did, the, is it just for destabilization? <laughs> destabilization. That's exactly right. That's why I brought it up. Destabilization. It's the same thing as devolution. It's the same thing as, 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 <clears throat> as, as regionalization. It's deconstructing mm -hmm. the political element of society. And it, I know it sounds crazy. It'll sound crazy to a lot of people what I'm saying here, but you go check, check the record on it. Sutherland is dead now, but go check his record. And it's like, you just you shake your head when you see this one man, one man in the right place. Well, the time that you mentioned this, I think it was yesterday or two days ago. So there's a small village in the region where I come from, Twente. And there are about 3,500 people living in this village. And um, from top down, they said, well, there's this hotel and they need to make space for 500 refugees now. And so the villagers, they weren't too happy. <laughs> yeah. and the mainstream press is like, they're racist. <laughs> you know, people are people no matter where they come from. That that's for certain. The human being is a human being no matter what. And you know, I look at our 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 illegal immigrants mostly here in the United States coming mm -hmm. across the southern border. Uh, most of those people that are coming across, I'm sure the vast majority are just people 
um, they have all the same human needs that you and I have. Mm -hmm. and some of them may be just as pleasant and just as um, needy, you know, looking mm -hmm. for a better life, trying to, you know, trying to protect their family, get, get better off in the world somehow. Um, and, and when somebody, when you're in front of somebody, another human being, maybe from like another country or something, you, there's still the natural urge to have compassion on those people. Once, once a person's in front of you, you say, well, you know, do you have a right to live? Well, yeah, you do because mm -hmm. you're born and you're, you're, you're human and you're here. Do you have a right to, you know, establish a family said, well, yes, you do, because that's part of the human condition. You, you start families and you, you have love in your families and you, you know, you do your motherly and your fatherly things in your families. That's all human stuff. Mm -hmm. So when people, when, when all of these people have come in from other countries and stuff into the society, some in America, some have assimilated quite well. They've become Americans and they, they have adopted the American philosophy, et cetera, you know, whatever. And, and they're just really good productive members of society. Other communities, however, have been completely exclusionist. Mm -hmm. Those are dangerous because they refuse to assimilate into society. This has been a big, the biggest problem in Europe is not that people came in and assimilated. You probably could have handled it. If they came, if anybody comes into your country and says, I want to be a fill in the blank, mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to, I'm in Germany now, I want to do as the Germans do, or mm -hmm. I'm in Sweden now, I want to do as the Swedes do. If anybody would come into Europe with that attitude, you wouldn't have the problems you're having today. It would be okay, mm -hmm. fine. You know, we, we got room for a lot of people here. You know, if you want to be like us and, be part of our culture and and respect our norms and our morals and etc and just kind of blend in with us welcome welcome home mm -hmm. but when you come in and refuse to assimilate set up communities <clears throat> that are in many cases now no-go zones as they call them where mm -hmm. police even don't want to go into these areas because they're afraid for their lives this does not help the the fabric of a country stay together it rips it apart yes so there's this tension between bad people and good people that come into your country, the ones that want to come in and, and be a part of your society and be a contributor to your society. Mm -hmm. You have to smile at them, you know, and say, well, I, I, you know, yeah, come on in. The people that really want to sink your ship, it's really hard to muster compassion for them. It really is because they, in, in a very real sense, they are an enemy of your country. Yes. <laughs> So it's difficult. I'm, we have enough problems here, but it is interesting, isn't it? There's never any migration out of Europe to go back to the mid East. It doesn't go the other way. There's nothing in America. Nobody in America wants to sneak across the Mexican border to go to Mexico. It just doesn't <laughs> happen. Not one. <laughs> and, and, you know, and nobody wants to go to China. And nobody wants to go to Russia and all these other, no, nobody sneaks into Uganda or. Well, I actually South don't know some people want to go to Russia. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a crazy world. But the technocrats have been the ones. And, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll reckon back to the concept mm -hmm. that this book, the earth broker brought out, you know, the rich will get richer. The poor will get poorer. And more and more of the planet will be destroyed in the process. This is what's happening. Exactly what happened. This, 
this policy, if it wasn't set before 1992, it crystallized into concrete mm-hmm. by 1992. And yes. we can look back now and look at that as a, I think, look at 1992 in particular and say, that was the, that was the modern attack on all of humanity to create an agenda for the 21st century that essentially would destroy the 21st century and create a future, as they call it, our common future. Well, bull, it's not my common future with them. It's, and it, it's your future, right? It should be, you should, you should have a say in your future is I feel that way. It's yes. my future, not your future. So when they say the future we desire, uh, coming out of the World Economic Forum, who are they speaking for? You and me? Mm-hmm. Not hardly. They're they're talking about their future, the future they see for themselves, and you are just a disposable resource in this grand economic scheme of things. They could care less, in one sense, if you live or die, or how you live or die. And there's no space for individual freedom or choice in this system. Not in the end of it, no. <clears throat> None whatsoever. And th- this has been incremental, I realize, but then mm. so has the EU. The yes. EU has been incremental. It didn't start out, boom, all of a sudden, there it was. It, just, it, it was like creeping along, and increasingly, you know, it became more powerful, and the people became less powerful, and now they have complete autonomy over everybody in Europe. This is the way technocracy works. This is the way has, it has worked. And the EU, by the way, is a, is a perfect expression of mm-hmm. what the early technocrats called a technate. That was the, the societal unit, like a, like a big city or even a country. They called it a technate. Mm-hmm. Europe is a perfect example of a, of a large, very large technate. It's taken decades to get to where you are today. And mm-hmm. obviously, throwing off those shackles is easier said than done. Uh, so, you know, all of, all of the exit movements and stuff. I mean, you can talk about it, yeah. but you just can't flip a switch and say, okay, we're done with you people. <laughs> no, certainly not. And what's interesting about Europe too is that they started out with, um, w- with international agreements in which they said we cooperate on economics. And it's becoming a European Union. And then they had a system of law. And in the system of law, they at some point ruled that um, that when there was a ruling in this court, in the European courts, then every country needed to obey this uh, ruling. But this ruling itself, it was actually in contradiction to the original agreement. So it had no validity. But after that... It was said, no, if the European uh, court, uh, court rules this, everyone needs to be obliged. And of course, we saw with Hungary now when they said, well, we have a constitutional court and we're going to listen to our constitutional court. They are like everyone is going hysterical and they said, oh, they're not respecting the spirit of the EU. Uh, but, but perhaps this is a good bridge to talk about what is reflexive law and how has it been implemented? Wow. There's an ongoing discussion right now with reflexive law, for sure. I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but I've been doing <clears throat> the speaking tour here in the, in the United States um, 
with uh, Reiner Ulmisch from Germany, sure. uh, who is the guy who started the Corona Investigative Committee in Germany mm -hmm. and interviewed uh, hundreds of scientists and doctors from all over the world on pandemic issues in particular. Well, he is a, he is a lawyer and mm -hmm. from Germany. And <clears throat> reflexive law is a legal theory. It is a brand new legal theory created in the uh, articulated in the um, 1880s and uh, from in Germany. It came from a German professor of law in one of the universities there. And um, uh, it, it was, if you could point back to something before that, it would be something kind of comparable to what we had maybe four or five, six hundred years ago called merchant law, where the ships of the sea that traveled the ocean, they would go through many different jurisdictions and countries and stuff. Mm -hmm. they, they developed their own legal system that was that superseded any nation. Uh, so if they were, uh, if a ship docked in Spain, uh, Spain might try to assert some legal authority over that ship or the people on it. And they would say, no, uh, we are subject to merchant law and we have our own code of law. We'll, we'll judge our own according to our own law. Well, <clears throat> that's not an accurate description totally of reflexive law today. But <clears throat> the idea, the opposing idea, uh, is what we traditionally know as the rule of law. Mm -hmm. where, uh, where parliaments and congresses create laws for a nation, and then everybody has the law applied equally, whether they're big, you know, high up people or down little people, whatever. Everybody's supposed to have the law applied to them uniformly. Mm -hmm. uh, this is traditionally what we have known in the Western world for a long time, for, for centuries, uh, the rule of law. And if you don't like the laws, uh, there's mechanisms that you might be able to get the laws changed to make them you know, more better for you. But <clears throat> lawbreakers in that case uh, are hauled into court um, and they are judged according to the rule of law and the existing law in that land. And it's supposed to be fair, of course, and all the evidence is heard. And then a punishment or a consequence is meted out, maybe a fine or maybe time in jail or whatever. <laughs> well, reflexive law is not so much interested at all in the nation and any laws of a particular nation state. Uh, in other words, they view themselves as above the hard laws, the statutory laws of a particular country, and instead <clears throat> bring into play a number of other what they call stakeholders. Now, this is kind of a UN concept here, mm -hmm. not a nation. Stakeholders. Well, what is a stakeholder? Well, in the case of some type of a, say, an environmental lawsuit that was brought against a farmer, I'll use mm -hmm. farmer in, in, in uh, the Netherlands example, a case is brought into court against a farmer who would like to claim, well, we have, I, I want to be judged according to the laws of the Netherlands, mm -hmm. not. You know, just that just, I live here. This is my country. Reflexive law would say, no, we're going to bring in outside consultants, outside stakeholders. Maybe they're going to bring in a crew from Nature Conservancy mm -hmm. or 
from uh, from the United Nations or some other organization belonging to the United Nations, maybe another NGO, mm-hmm. uh, maybe just industry experts from corporations, and have those people come in and testify in court to determine whether you're guilty or not. You say, well, what do these stakeholders have to do with me? You know, like somebody from the United Nations or somebody from from Nature Conservancy comes in and gives expert testimony that I'm somehow violating a law that doesn't exist on the books? Well, that's exactly what it is. It becomes like a like a kangaroo court, we, what we call in America a kangaroo court. I'm not sure where that yeah. phrase comes from. You know, they, they, they get a consensus of opinion from other experts and apply that consensus to your situation to punish you or not to punish you. And if you're guilty of doing something, according to this reflexive law, if you're guilty of doing something, then instead of just having the t- necessarily the traditional punishments of going to jail, mm-hmm. you could go to jail, but they might otherwise punish you economically Take away your property, for instance, and kick you yeah. off. Of. I think that's part of the issue right now in, in the Netherlands. Um, reflexive law has been declared by the United Nations, officially and pointedly, as being the only appropriate legal system for sustainable development. So it's a that's- very clear example of completely putting politics aside, because politics, of course, is a way to agree upon which law is being applied. Right. Exactly right. You got it. You hit the nail on the head. Exactly right. Pretty twisted, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's very, because I had never heard of it before, but, but that's why I wanted to bring it up, because I think it's so important for people to realize this, because as you say, the government is not becoming, it's an empty shell. But I still notice a lot of people who believe that that it still has some validity in the sense that there is a balance of power and you vote and there's representation. Uh, but once you see this, um, yeah, you, 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 this process of devolution, and I have to say it's on so many levels. I wrote an article a short while ago because that was actually in response to, to it was reading your book, but it was also a lecture by Yuri Beresnov. He was a KGB agent who defected to the US. And he talked about the uh, Soviet process of um, undermining uh, state structures. And he said, you move the real power into uh, committees that have know that that are outside the realm of politics but that's where the real power is and then when i read your book and i listened to coincidentally to his lecture i thought suddenly it clicked i saw (laughs) because it's not just the eu but um in the netherlands so we have the traditional um the, the traditional state like so there's the parliament on a national level there are provinces, but the real like a, a, a democratic layer is the municipalities, where in principle you are still able to know your representative. There's been a lot of concentration there too, so, so that's in principle. So what they did is that after a big fireworks disaster in Enschede in 2001, they said, we have issues with safety. 
And um, so we need to manage safety. So they created something uh, that's called the Institute of Physical Safety. And um, so this Institute of Physical Safety is where uh, they, they, they split the countries up into safety regions. And when there is a safety problem, then the, the, uh, the mayor of the safety region takes charge. So it puts a line through everything of the municipality, like every, all, the, all the, the, the democratic processes of the municipalities. So, so it, I think most people weren't even aware of this, but this is the reasons why the municipalities weren't able to resist the COVID policies. So it's this separate, separate structure that's been erected, but it's on many, many levels. Sorry, I'm interrupting you, but no, you're not. This, this, this is this is good. This is good. <clears throat> it, it's it, it, it's important to see that technocracy is completely uh, antithetic to any other type of political system, including. Mm -hmm. But, you know, especially to any type of a country that, that was rooted in, originally in democracy or, in our case, constitutional republic, technocracy is absolutely antithetic to it. And what I mean by antithetic, it means it's a polar opposite. It's like matter and antimatter. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, north and south. I mean, they're completely different. And one will destroy the other. And so far, technocracy has been the source of the gangrene in the world, where every time it touches uh, any sort of a democratic system, any sort of a free market economic system, gangrene sets into that other system, mm -hmm. and it eats it eats away at it. It just eats away and corrupts it. Um, I, I I I I can't not bring up a statement by the United Nations to prove my point. That was um, that was made by. Of the former head of climate change at the UN. Her name is Christiana Figueres. Uh, she was the one that drove the, um, the Paris Climate Accord. Mm -hmm. uh, she's dynamo, no doubt. She's a very bright woman uh, from Costa Rica, I believe. <clears throat> she gave a press release shortly after. It was in 2015, actually. And this is what she said in this press release, press conference. Uh, this is a direct quote from her lips. Mm -hmm. People need to consider what she's talking about here. She said, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we, the United Nations, are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. Close quote. This portends the complete destruction and replacement of capitalism with this mm. other economic system. Yes. And she says, if you were a, a criminal lawyer or a policeman, mm -hmm. you, you'd be sensitive to when, when conspiracies form. You have to have certain elements there to prove it. Uh, she said they have an intention, number one. Mm -hmm. Very important. They're intending to do this. She said that in 2015. Secondly, they have a timeline established. They not only have the intention, but now they say they have a timeline, you know, year of month by month, year of whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they have the object of what they're going to do. They're going to replace 
the current economic development model, which we all know is capitalism and free market economics. The United Nations, in other words, which is the, the, the seatbed of global technocracy, mm -hmm. has shown their true colors by saying, we will destroy you. We intend to destroy you. We have a timeline to destroy you. And we have the object of, of destruction is to move you into sustainable development, which is technocracy, and get rid of capitalism and free market economics altogether. Mm -hmm. and this is the big picture thing to hang on to. But I tell you, these people, especially the United Nations, is, is just expressing to us the moral hazard that exists to kill anything that has to do with capitalism and free market economics. And if those farmers, I think they picked up on this, mm -hmm. yes. they see not just as a threat against production. And I come from a farming background. I grew up on a farm, by the way, and I know all about nitrogen and how nitrogen gets set in the soil so that future crops can grow more robust and so on. The issue of uh, cutting allocations for nitrogen-based fertilizer is patently insane. But the real goal is goes a little bit beyond that, and that is to drive these farmers out of existence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Take their property, give it to some whoever, some giant, you know, agricultural corporation or whatever, and bounce them off of their generational properties. This is so low-handed, dirty, uh, mean-spirited. Mm -hmm. But from, from the elitist point of view, it's perfectly logical. They set out to get all the resources of the world into their hands and taken away from you. So from their point of view, this is a great success. <laughs> you know, let's just cut back their, their fertilizer so far that they won't be able to make any money when they grow their crops, and hence they can't pay their debts, and hence we'll foreclose on their land, and they're out. Well, that's also something about the mechanism that I thought about often lately is that they, they are not using physical force yet. Yes. But they're using regulations, and they're oh. So I I wrote an, an a series of articles on vertical farming and on lab, laboratorium meats, and um, somebody else I'm working with she wrote on insect farms, and what I noticed that in each of these documents where they're promoting it, they say oh it has little land use, it's carbon neutral, we use low energy, it uses eighty percent less water. It doesn't use pesticides. So I thought, oh, they're going to just turn up the dial where they say, well, um, the production uh, the production capacity of a vertical farm is this many kilometer, kilograms per square meter. And, um, and you have this water carbon energy budget to do that. And none of the traditional farms will be able to meet those, uh, those demands. So, so, so they... they Yes, I think they will all push it through the legislation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, all of the all of the technological solutions that are being put forth by 
technocrat-minded scientists and engineers, almost invariably they're they're um, they're overpromised. <clears throat> they are underthought. In other words, they haven't thought it through, and they make it sound real good so that people will oh let's go do that. Yeah, that's a great idea. But mm -hmm. when it actually gets into practice, all of a sudden, oh, uh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Well. I, I grew up in an area in California where, uh, you know, hothouse farming or, you know, greenhouse farming was uh, kind of became a thing in the 50s and 60s. And they made these giant, um, you know, sun collecting uh, tents, mm -hmm. sort of, they were buildings, but they put these big fans in the ends of the building to, to bring in higher concentrations of CO2. And they had water, uh, you know, running through them where they would, uh, they call it hydroponics and they put fertilizer in the water and the water would go. And, and, um, what happened on more than one occasion that some glitch in the electrical system shut down the fans and shut down the pumps. <laughs> and let me tell you how long it takes for a plant to die. If you shut off the air and you shut off the water and there's a great source of heat coming from outside the building, it takes about a day and a half or two before the entire crop is destroyed. Well, Europe right now has this huge energy crisis going on. That was part, and by the way, energy crisis and control over energy was a big part of the original technocrat model. Mm -hmm. but now Europe is finding out I think Germany probably as much as anybody, but you know, they're finding out, gee, all of our alternative energy uh, policies and plans, you know, it's, it's like, uh, we thought it was really good, but gee, now we're, you know, now we don't have enough energy and we can't possibly produce enough energy with our alternative energy means and stuff. And so, mm -hmm. uh, what are we going to do? Well, as some say, it's going to be a very cold winter in Germany, <laughs> probably mm -hmm. as other countries do. Um, all of these solutions that we have like this, we've got the, um, you know, the, the vertical farming is a good example. That just kind of caught my ear, but you have a lot of other things like the, uh, the, uh, you know, lab grown food, lab grown beef and whatever. Uh, now they're, you know, talking about insect protein is going to be the next wave of the future to eat bugs instead of, uh, soy protein, you can have a shake made of insect uh, cricket protein or something. All of these technological answers that people come up with, when you see them through to the end and you think them through logically, there are such huge, huge problems that it's just inconceivable they ever started the project in the first place. How did they get the first base even with some of these ideas? They would have fallen apart if anybody had just looked in the first place. There was a story mm -hmm. at local media here where a parent bought a car for their student going off to, uh, to college, I think it was. And he was mm -hmm. like going out on his own. And they bought him a car, paid $11,000 for it or something like that, late model car route. And they bought the car for him as an electric vehicle. An EV had a battery, one of these big lithium ion batteries, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody was happy. It's like, oh, wow, you know, the kid was happy. Oh, man, I got this really cool car. It's technologically advanced. It's wonderful, yada, yada. <clears throat> and um, 
Uh, and the parents were happy because, you know, they did something good for their son. And um, hmm. so <clears throat> the car was just sufficiently old enough that nobody realized when they bought the car that the battery was about to go bad. <laughs> they took it into the dealer and said, you know, things losing charge. It doesn't want to run anymore. And what, what, what can we do? And they said, well, you need to replace your battery. Okay, let's replace the battery. And they said, no problem. That'll be $10,000, please. <laughs> the parents had just paid 11000 for the car. And now they got a $10,000 repair bill to replace the battery that cannot, by the way, the old battery cannot be put in a landfill. I know, yeah. And, you know, there's, where do you put them? And, you know, the whole thing is so shallow in thinking that it's just inconceivable. You know, it starts out sounding so good, but then the back end of it starts to bite you and you realize you've been had. <laughs> you realize that life was not greener. You know, the grass wasn't greener on the other yes. side of the hill. It actually was plastic grass. Um, oh, so, you know, but we deal with this all kinds of issues across this whole technocratic you know, scene, whether it's what stuff the United Nations does or invents or what, uh, you know, what these other organizations are trying to do, like with farmers and stuff, it's all so thin. It's so it's just not thought through. And it has been destructive of the environment, not constructive. It hasn't done anything to improve it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, because you mentioned like it's a radical, like they have a deliberate intention of a radical transformation of the economy through like the sustainable development goals, because it's a way to manage land and resources. And in the name of like, we're improving the environment, they're taking ownership of it. And it's very central uh, ownership. And um, yeah, so, it seems logical that, that when they want to introduce a central bank digital currency tied to a carbon credit or something like that, then then you're a step further in this economic system because you don't you don't need to have the regular supply and demand dynamics, but, but you can measure everything by resource use. Yeah. So I would almost say that adoption of this central bank digital currency. It, yeah, it, is that the, the pinnacle of getting to this new economic system or does it need additional extra steps? That's, that's a big part for sure of it. There, there are certain things that must be in place in order for any economic system to work. Mm -hmm. In other words, components, like the basic components of making it any economic system work. <clears throat> um, one of those is a legal system, which we just talked about. You have to have a legal system. The legal system is reflexive law. The United Nations has said that openly. This is the le this is the future legal system of sustainable development. Not holding back at all. By the same token, you need to have um, you need to have a system of some system of finance in place. And the United Nations has declared again openly and pointedly that fintech is the future financial system of sustainable development. They've said that openly, FinTech. That's an, a shortening for financial technologies. 
mostly focused around blockchain. But blockchain is not just for digital currencies, mm -hmm. like you know Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, or even a central bank digital currency. Blockchain is much broader than that because it can contain any kind of information that you can conceive of, and it becomes a beautiful way to collect all that data back, uh, you know, to some central place, and mm -hmm. and decode it, if you will, so that it fits into a database somehow. But not only can every financial transaction in the world be put on a blockchain, but also all property exchanges, all rental contracts, all rental exchanges, everything you buy, like a car or whatever, can be put on the blockchain. All psychographic information about you could be reduced to blockchain uh, entries. And um, as, a, as a large body of technology, fintech is where they say the future of sustainable development lies that was and again i would argue that's technocracy mm -hmm. this is exactly what was specified exactly what was specified back in 1932 or 1934 when the technocracy study course was written that um that there would be this level of financial collection of information and products consumed everywhere in the technate this is exactly what they said and we see exact manifestations of that today the central bank digital currencies are going to eventually supplant all of the other fiat currencies that we have today because those fiat currencies were designed to support capitalism and free market economics they're going to be gone fintech will take over the greatest expression of which will be central bank digital currencies mastered by all the central banks of the world Mm -hmm. with the Bank for International Settlements at the pinnacle, the peak of it, top of it. It's based, BIS is based in Switzerland. They're mm -hmm. the central bank, two central banks. They pretty much call all the shots that happen throughout the central bank system from the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So this system's coming like a freight train right now. Uh, they're all, they have all announced that they're working on their own uh, digital currency and yes. in particular on how those will interoperate with each other and how they'll mm -hmm. be able to clear them through one common entity at the BIS. So when that digital currency comes into play and they force the other currencies out or just whatever, burn them up, wash them away, mm -hmm. then the sustain, then they say the sustainable development system which again is technocracy will be functional, fully functional. That will be the day that scientific dictatorship truly comes to the world because there'll be no escape. So what can we do to avoid it? Well, if you listen to somebody like Catherine Austin Fitz, uh, she says one thing to do is uh, to only use cash. Don't don't use plastic. Don't use debit cards. Whatever. Just pay cash everywhere and tell everybody you give cash to why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to drive cash out of our system and make way for some other system to come in and dominate us. But rather use cash today, tomorrow, and you know whatever. Keep it in circulation. Mm -hmm. um, we saw in Sweden. I believe there was an experiment to go cashless a few years ago. And finally, the Swedes figured out 
what happens if the bank machines go down uh, yeah. <laughs> or the internet goes down or we have an energy blackout? What's going to happen to our money? Well, yeah, guess what, guys? You won't have any. <laughs> you, could be, you could be a millionaire in a bank, but you're not going to get a nickel out with your plastic. So they, they did an about face and they said, no, we're not going to go cashless. We need to keep cash in society. So that's one thing that can be done for sure. The other thing is we need to, we need to maintain free speech. Like thing, like we're talking about this right now. This is uh, free speech is a universal concept, by the way. It's not limited in, by all means, not to America. This is a, this is a universal concept that people uh, have the right to speak out, to speak their opinion, not to be mean, not to harm any people, but just this is, this is part of being a human. We, we want to talk. We want to speak. And the enemy of technocracy is free speech. That is why you see such a massive, massive campaign of propaganda across the world, especially in the last two years since COVID started. Mm -hmm. Inundated with censorship, uh, with propaganda, stories coming through you know, mainline media that have no relation to reality whatsoever, just flat out lies in many cases. Um, it almost reminds you in some ways of Nazi Germany that, that adopted a propaganda machine to keep the people docile, thinking that everything is good, while behind the scenes, bad things were happening. So free speech is a big, big issue in my mind across the world right now. And I think every country on the face of the planet is struggling with this right now in some mm -hmm. way. Europe has huge censorship and even laws in place now that criminalize dissent. Mm -hmm. We do, and well, Europe, uh, excuse me, uh, Canada does. We're not quite so bad yet, but we're really close. <laughs> and, you know, over here, especially with COVID, you know, many doctors and, and scientists, their careers have been ruined mm -hmm. because of censorship and, and this propaganda that, you know, people, you know, drum or drive these, these poor people out of their careers completely and they find themselves out in the street. It's just incredible. It's like, wow, this, this, this is science, right? Yeah, where there's always open discussion, right? Not here, not with propaganda, not with technocracy. No, no, that's very true. That yeah, and that's scary actually, because there are a lot of people who don't don't understand what debate is anymore. Even like there's a scientific consensus, and and you even cannot explain that consensus has nothing to do with science. <clears throat> and everyone who diverts from the consensus is a conspiracy thinker, math hatter. I don't know what the other slurs are. So. Um, <clears throat> I know one of the big problems that we've had in fighting technocracy has been that people can only understand what's going on today in the world through the lens of communism and socialism. Mm. This has been a fatal flaw, in my opinion. And I'm, I don't want to talk down to somebody that, that has that view, <clears throat> but it's understandable that people have that view, being that that's been the major troublemaker the last hundred plus years has been communism, socialism, Marxism, so on, and fascism too. And so people have a very bad taste in their mouth as a result of that. I, and I suppose, especially in Europe. Um, but 
Technocracy is none of those. And back in the 30s, 1930s, the technocrats hated the communists. There was a big communist party, by the way, in, in America back in the 30s, 20s and 30s. Yeah. The technocrats hated the communists, and the communists hated the technocrats. They were enemies, and they were vocal about it. And the reason the technocrats hated the communists is because they wouldn't abandon their concept of price-based economic system. They wanted to keep the currency in place. And the technocrats said, no, you have to manage the resources of the world. You have to have an energy-based currency, not a price-based currency. And so they were mortal enemies, and they still are to this very day. They, they, have, they, have, they have used Marxism mm -hmm. to deconstruct society. <laughs> Marxism is a great destroyer. It knows how to destroy things. So it's, it, they will use that. Like in America, we have Black Lives Matter. We have Antifa. Uh, you know, these radical organizations that are riding in the streets and they're burning out stores and stuff like that. You know, all of this um, destructive things is kind of tearing our fabric of our country apart. <clears throat> it's not, it may be the instruments of, that they're using have some flavor of Marxism in them. Like mm -hmm. Antifa stands for the anti-fascist, whatever, the same anti-fascist movement that uh, that the communists mounted in Nazi Germany, by the way, is called Antifa, same symbol even on the flag. So you see the elements of this, uh, oh, you know, like somebody, his store gets burned down, oh, well, there's the problem right there, they say this, it's communism, it's Marxism trying to take us over. Not really, what is happening is they're just fanning the flames down here to deconstruct society just a little bit more so they can come in with their technological solutions to transform everything, you know, away from that. And I, I tell people, politicians, as well as those given over to like BLM and, you know, the radical, more radical stuff like Antifa, mm -hmm. I say, guys, you are going to be thrown under the bus. You should not have any illusion about this. When technocracy takes over, they will throw you under the bus in a country minute. And that will be the end of you. <laughs> and a lot of people just don't get it. A lot of politicians don't get that yet. But boy, they should get it because they are the puppets right now of these technocrats. And mm -hmm. we've seen in the COVID era, especially with behind every prime minister, there's been some unelected, unaccountable medical technocrat calling the shots yes. <laughs> for their country. And, and the, the politicians just go like this. <laughs> they just, they parrot whatever is told. Comes down from the World Health Organization or your own medical people, whatever. The politicians just yap, 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 yap. They don't understand that there will be a day when their yapper is not needed anymore. <laughs> Be so what can we do to get our governments back? Because I feel like the concept of technocracy also really explains like your concept of devolution and the reflexive law is that we have the government. What we, what we see is that there are kind of committees in the background that are writing the policies quite literally. Yes. Uh, like in the Netherlands, the, the, some uh, aware parliamentary members, they 
they started asking a lot of questions about the cooperation between the cabinet and the World Economic Forum. And they made binding legal agreements and are spending a lot of tax money. Nobody has voted for this. So I would say that on the one hand, yeah, they're writing the policies. It's almost also basically infiltration. But yeah, what can we do to get our governance systems back? Because, because sometimes it feels every element of the government is so corrupted that you think, I don't know how we can, can make this whole again. Yeah. But at yeah. the same time, if you give that up, then you're advocating for revolution. And those usually don't end very well. So, yeah, yeah what is a better way to, to, to get a government that works for the people, yeah. by the people again? I'll tell you, every government official that you have elected in your local communities, all the way through your national uh, community, every politician needs to understand that technocracy and sustainable development are their personal enemies. That's a, that's a, a big realization they don't have right now. They think they're doing a good thing. They think they're causing progress to take place, but they're not. They need to be persuaded that these technocrats are coming for them and that they will be destroyed if they stand in the way in any, any way, shape, or form in the future. When, when a politician or a, even a small group of politicians gets the idea that their own job is in jeopardy if they don't resist, um, that will be the day when government starts to change and take control again. If you follow, if you follow my meaning here, they right now they're oblivious to this. Mm -hmm. The place to start is in your local community, where you know people, where you can visit people, where you can go and talk with them. Like maybe I don't know, you the officials in your city or officials in your district or whatever you know, whatever you, you live at. Mm -hmm. We have counties. Um, there's other smaller divisions in every country. Um, mm -hmm. Those politicians need to be wrapped under your wing and go and communicate with them, even if it's difficult to communicate with them. Mm -hmm. uh, people just like you and I, and you need to be able to talk to them in, a, in just a, a calm and balanced sort of way, and say, "Look, you know, this we need to we need to talk about these things." Friend, I mean, just bringing up the facts, not trying to say, "Well, you're really stupid." You know, that, mm -hmm. you're not going to get anybody that way, right? Mm -hmm. But when you talk to somebody, for instance, and show them this quote by Christiana Figueres, for instance. I mean, everybody in Europe ought to know this woman. She's been all over the place. I mean, she's still very vocal. She travels all over. She gives speeches. And she's involved in the sustainable movement everywhere. Mm -hmm. Even if you just take this quote and ask your politician what do you think she means by this? You know, just what is it? You know, here, just, just read this and tell me what is she saying? What's this intention business? What's this time? Do you know what the timeline is? Just to start to get them thinking. Any mm -hmm. idiot really can read this kind of a statement and say, it sounds to me like these are words of war, even <laughs> though there was not a shooting war at the time. These are, this is, you know, 
a huge, huge statement. Now, you could probably take that, that, you know, that questioning thing a lot of different ways, but you know, just as an, the World Economic Forum is a big thing in Europe, I know Klaus Schwab publicly on the website has said, by 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy. Let's just say that you, you're sitting in front of somebody that is a local politician who really believes in the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, and Building Back Better, and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and you ask him, say, well, I understand, I understand that this concept that you, uh, by 2030, that you loan nothing and, and be happy. I, I want to be happy. I understand that. But uh, if I own nothing, can you please tell me who does own all the stuff? <laughs> uh, somebody has to own it because it does exist in time and space and has value. I'm going to rent it, by the way, and I'll be happy to rent it. But can anybody explain to me who actually is going to have title to those things? See, these are things people don't ever think about. The politicians, they don't think about this kind of stuff. They're too busy. The magicians got them too busy looking at the right hand. <laughs> while the left hand is skinning them from the head down. People can be reached, even now, and, and unbrainwashed. I I'm also thinking about, so in the Netherlands, I don't think everyone has a smart meter yet, but that's one push to have the smart meter. Like, why do you need to have this surveillance tool in the middle of your home? Yes. And the other part is in the municipalities, I think the U.S. is further along with the uh, rollout of 5G, but um, through the telecom law, they gave the telecom companies ba basically free range to place any transmitters under five meters. So even though the, the municipality is supposed to, uh, to make decisions about how the public spaces are used, they they don't have anything to say what's happening under five meters. So yeah. in this one city, Appledorn, all these mysterious little white boxes were being tied to lampposts and people were noticing and was like, what is this? What is it doing? And they're running into walls like nobody knows. And why, why is a company allowed to place these boxes? Well, nobody is aware of this deal that's been made with the telecom companies decades ago. So... And then there's, of course, the smart meter, the smart city planning, um, where, where, so this is interesting, actually. So the, the rollout of 5G, there's no real business case for it. But what's happening is that they're supplanting the lampposts. So all the municipalities are changing, changing regular lamps for smart lamps. And they have to allow the telecom companies to make use of the infrastructure. So that's a very smart way to make citizens also pay for this infrastructure. So I think that, that besides the World Economic Forum, because almost like mentioning them sometimes already shuts a door, but just talk about like, why are we getting these lampposts? Who is to get to use this data? Who is managing this? Like there, there are a lot of smart city projects 
And even when uh, city civil servants, they say, uh, what data is being tracked? Can we have access to this data? Then the companies that are working on it, they say, no, it's pr proprietary. So, so there's like, like yeah, they actually call it like pilots. Like, um, um, no, they have a word for it. But basically, yeah, like, like big experimentation gardens and, and you're just walking around in it and, and it's surveillance central. Um, and, and it's happening in so many cities at this moment. So yeah. for yeah. everyone listening, <laughs> that's a good way uh, to start talking with um, yes. that's the Dutch word for it. Exactly. <clears throat> you just have to talk about these things. These are discussions that, that the propaganda machine wants you not to have, but mm -hmm. you have to talk about these things. And the, the biggest realization I think that helps people uh, kind of get out of the old way of thinking about this is when, when, when they can understand that when the United Nations talks about resources and sustainable development, mm -hmm. that includes you. You are a resource to them, just like any other thing in, in the world is, like the trees in the forest or the cattle in the feedlot or the, in the pen. You are a resource that, <clears throat> that demands to be controlled through social engineering, by the way, but that demands to be controlled. Um, people, I've never met one yet, people do not like to be controlled. I don't, I've never met anybody say, oh, please control me, you know, just, <laughs> just do whatever. I mean, that, that, no, that's not, never the way it is. If you make a decision, you want it to be your decision to do something. Well, this has all been voluntary in that sense. They sucked people into a voluntary proposition where they weren't, they didn't feel like they were forced. That's the beauty of social engineering, by the way. They didn't feel like they were forced, but they got talked into the position. When they realize now that they have been snookered and that they are being controlled and that the object of all of this technology is to control you more. Mm -hmm. When they get that idea, they don't have to understand anything about smart grid yet or 5G. It's like mm -hmm. the system wants to control you. Are you happy with that? You know, I, I use questions a lot. I, I like to ask questions just to get people thinking. Are you, would you be happy if you knew that other people were controlling your every movement and all the decisions that you make? I don't, I don't know anybody's going to say, well, yeah, I can't wait for that. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the thought of being controlled is just, um, it's just an, an anathema to anybody. Well, I want to give a small example, but perhaps it's, so the Netherlands is a small country and we used to, were allowed to uh, drive 120 kilometers per hour, but now because of the environment, it's 100 kilometers. But after seven o'clock in certain areas, you are allowed to drive 120 kilometers. So, so it's very small. So it changes the whole time per time, but also per distance. Yeah. And then the whole highway is full of cameras. So whenever I drive on one of these main highways, I feel like this is a social engineering experiment because yeah. you just want to drive. But, you know, like if you drive too fast, there are like 300 cameras that record somehow that you're 
uh, not driving too fast and then you need to change your behavior every five to ten minutes or to to keep aware <laughs> of all the signposts so I, I yeah i get frustrated driving because it feels to me like social engineering basically it yeah. doesn't feel as if it's for my safety or for the environment i know i know so so in any case you know the 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 helping people understand that this whole program is about manipulating them as a resource in the whole scheme of things it's um it definitely is dehumanizing that's mm -hmm. that's probably another basic thing that you know we as we as humans have a completely unique place on planet earth mm -hmm. and nobody likes to be treated like an animal nobody nobody i've never met anybody that like to be treated wants to be treated like an animal um, unimportant, you know, just like dirt, like your life is, your life is worthless. Your life's not worth anything. Nobody likes to be treated that way. And so coming to the realization that the people that are pulling the strings view you exactly that way. You're just an animal. You're no different than an amoeba in the pond. You just well, need to be controlled and you need to be managed and if we if we tell you that you need uh, an an experimental messenger RNA shot put into your arm and into your system, then you're going to do it because we are the managers here, not you. We are the managers. We will decide what goes into your body. We will decide what goes into your mouth. We will decide whether where you live. Yeah. Maybe maybe a, a tiny home or a or shipping container someday. <laughs> we will decide where you can and cannot go. We will decide when you should be locked down and be of no productive use to anybody anywhere in the world, and you will comply. <laughs> all of these things just speak of, yes, control. It's all about control in the end. When people start to feel that, yes, I see it, that trying to control us like we're just so much cannon fodder. That's when, that's when the personal rebellion, the pushback starts. They're just not going to put up with it anymore. And, and I think the Dutch farmers are getting the message. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so I think we covered a lot of grounds and I hope for <laughs> <Yeah>. the, list <laughs> the listeners, because I know it's a very big topic and, uh, but it's really tied to like, it's really a, ideology that's driving us and that's informing so many of these movements so if you want to learn more i would really recommend to read one of these books uh, where can they find your website or order your books um you know the books are available on any electronic form around the world uh there's there's more than one in europe i know uh, including amazon <laughs> But, um, you know, people can, if they just don't want to even buy it, if they're afraid to buy it, I don't want anybody to know I bought this book. We'll go down to a local bookstore and ask them to special order a book. They will do that, and you give them cash, and nobody will know you have my book. Okay. So, but otherwise, um, technocracy.news is where you can keep up with everything going on in the world with technocracy now. And, um, Occasionally, somebody from outside the United States does order a book from our website. It's, shipping is the problem. It mm -hmm. is 
expensive and it takes time to get overseas, especially down to Australia. Oh my gosh, sometimes it takes a month to get a single book down to Australia. So <clears throat> if there's any way for you to buy a book locally, it's probably better to do that. And there's a, uh, I, don't, I don't know all the other electronic uh, you know, book ordering services you have over there, but I do know in case of Amazon, they have a UK version of the website. They have a European version. I think Germany might have its own version. <clears throat> so it should be pretty easy to, to get a hold, hold of something in your local community. Good. Well, thank you very much. I thought this was very informative and, yeah, very interesting interview. So thank you. My pleasure.